0: Say, trick or treat? Trick
1: or treat? Trick or treat? T- È, I mean,
0: trick yes. like Though, or treat? Oh. Ocasional-
1: trick yes. well, you know. o- or treat? No, hmm. like trick
0: or
1: treat? Trick or treat? Trick or treat?
0: chick a treat chick or treat chick chick
1: Welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today's show, Halloween Histories and Mysteries, Unwrapped. That October feeling is in the air. The weather here in Virginia is beautiful. I've been seeing pumpkins and gourds everywhere. The kids have already decided what costumes they're going to be wearing. Apple spice and pumpkin donuts are piled up high in the food store. Pumpkin-flavored beer is in the fridge. A loved one just sent the kids by with homemade pumpkin bread, and the local coffee house has pumpkin lattes ready to go. It doesn't get much better than this. Well, it actually does, because Halloween is just around the corner. This year, Halloween falls on a Monday, so school teachers will have a straight five days of kids on a candy high without any weekend days to temper their moods. I have teachers in the family who taught me over the years to look out for things like this so I know it's a good time to keep the wine cabinet full at home. In the seven years we've been a show, I've never done a Halloween history episode, and there's so much history and legend wrapped around Halloween, it's amazing it took me this long. We can thank the Celts, who, by the way, weren't originally Scots or Irish, as I thought. They were part of a collection of migrating tribes of peoples from Europe, all over Western Europe, sort of like gypsies who arrived in Ireland in about 500 B.C., and thanks to their great storytelling abilities, they helped to create much of the Irish folklore we know of today, which is why many people believe they originated in Ireland. They were great warriors as well, so said the Romans, who received some mighty defeats from them over the centuries. The Romans left them alone after taking a few unproductive and costly whacks at them over the years. Word has it that Celt DNA is distinguishable nowadays and that haplogroup is found primarily in 25 regions. So if you've been wondering why you always want to light fires, tell stories, and ambush the uniformed postman, that might be a reason. They say Celts invented Halloween, sort of, as Halloween tradition originated with the ancient Celtic festival of Sain, which is spelled Samhain, like S-A-M-H-A-I-N, Samhain, but it's pronounced Sain, saa In this ancient festival of Sion, people would light bonfires and wear costumes to ward off ghosts. In 43 AD, the Romans adopted the festival, adding their own unique twists plus all their gods. Actually, the tradition of apple bobbing came from the Romans. They established a day to honor Pomona, the Roman goddess of fruit and trees. The symbol of Pomona is the apple, and the incorporation of this celebration into Sion probably explains the tradition of bobbing for apples that's practiced today on Halloween. The Romans also attached some superstitions and rituals to Halloween. For instance, many had to do with helping young women identify their future husbands and reassuring them that they would someday, with luck, by the next Halloween, hopefully, be married. In 18th century Ireland, a matchmaking cook might bury a ring in her mashed potatoes on Halloween night hoping to bring true love to the diner who found it. In Scotland, fortune tellers recommended that an eligible young woman name a hazelnut for each of her suitors, and then toss the nuts into the fireplace. The nut that burned to ashes rather than popping or exploding, as the story goes, represented the girl's future husband. In some versions of this legend, the opposite was true. The nut that burned away symbolized a love that wouldn't last smart families agreed on the right solution before the hazelnuts were thrown another tale had it that if a young woman ate a sugary concoction made out of walnuts hazelnuts and nutmeg before bed on halloween night she would dream about her future husband and this one's pretty far out young women tossed apple peels over their shoulders hoping that the peels would fall on the floor in the shape of their future husband's initials they also tried to learn about their futures by peering at egg yolks floating in a bowl of water, and stood in front of mirrors in darkened rooms, holding candles and looking over their shoulders for their husbands' faces. Other rituals were more competitive. At some Halloween parties, the first guest to find a burr on a chestnut hunt would be the first to marry. At others, the first successful apple bobber would be the first down the aisle. Some years later, Not to be deprived of all the fun, and eager to clean up any pagan and Roman customs that came with the holiday, the Church got into it, and that was in the 8th century, when Pope Gregory III designated November 1st as a time to honor all saints. Note, Roman gods were replaced by saints. Soon after, All Saints Day, also called All Hallows, incorporated some of the traditions of Sion. The evening before became known as All Saints' Eve which is our October 31st, Halloween. Over time, Halloween evolved into a day of activities, including trick-or-treating, carving jack-o'-lanterns, festive gatherings, wearing costumes, and eating treats. The word Halloween is actually a contraction of hollows, meaning the saints, the hallowed ones, and ween, meaning evening. And there you have it, Halloween. The time of Halloween meant the end of summer and the harvest, and the beginning of the dark, cold winter, the time of year that we associate often with death. The Celts believed that on the night before the New Year, which was All Hallows' Eve, the boundaries between the living and the dead became blurred. On the night of October 31st, they celebrated Sion, when it was believed that the ghosts of the dead returned to the earth. This brought trouble, and sometimes even damaged crops, according to legend, and kept the Celtic priests, also called Druids, "'busy making predictions about the future. "'Since everyone in those days was entirely dependent on the natural world, "'these predictions met a great deal, "'and the druids, or wise ones, had a lot of power. "'When they forecasted, people listened. "'There are a couple of theories kicking around "'concerning why costumes became so popular, "'but the most prevalent one is this. "'On Halloween, when it was believed that ghosts came back to the earthly world,' people thought that they would encounter ghosts if they left their homes. To avoid being recognized by these ghosts, people would wear masks when they left their homes after dark so that the ghosts would mistake them for fellow spirits. As you might guess, the more creative people started wearing skins and furs and all kinds of strange stuff to make sure the evil spirits, or the dead, take your pick, didn't recognize them. The Druids built the fire so they could offer animal sacrifices to the Celtic deities. When the reveling was over, each villager lit their own torch to take home from that fire, and then they lit their hearth fire to keep safe throughout the winter. Here in America, in colonial New England, the celebration of Halloween was extremely limited because of the rigid Protestant belief systems there. Halloween was much more common in Maryland and the southern colonies. As the beliefs and customs of different European ethnic groups merged, a distinctly American version of Halloween began to show forth, The first celebrations included Play Parties, which were public events held to celebrate the harvest. Neighbors would share stories of the dead, tell each other's fortunes, dance, and sing. Colonial Halloween festivities also featured the telling of ghost stories and mischief-making of all kinds. And speaking of mischief-making, I can't go without mentioning the fine American custom of Mischief Night, which, in Pennsylvania at least, is celebrated the night before Halloween Day, and we'll get into that in detail in just a few minutes. By the middle of the 19th century, annual autumn festivities were common, but Halloween was not yet celebrated everywhere in the country. In the second half of the 19th century, America was flooded with new immigrants. These new immigrants, especially the millions of Irish fleeing the Irish potato famine, helped to popularize the celebration of Halloween nationally. Borrowing from European traditions, Americans began to dress up in costumes and go house to house asking for food or money, a practice that eventually became today's trick-or-treat tradition. It bears repeating. Halloween actually means All Hallows' Eve, when we used to honor the hollow dead, and trick-or-treating used to be known as guising, from which the word disguising eventually sprang. Apparently, it was three little ducks who brought us the expression trick-or-treat. And we'll get to their story in just a few minutes. We'll return with Halloween Histories and Mysteries Unwrapped right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. On All Saints and All Souls Day during the 19th century, candles were lit in homes in Ireland, Flanders, Bavaria, and in Tyrol, where they were called soul lights that served to guide the souls back to visit their earthly homes. In many of these places, candles were also lit at graves on all souls' day. In Brittany, milk was poured on the graves of kinfolk, or food would be left outside overnight. Shakespeare mentions souling in his comedy The Two Gentlemen of Verona, written in 1593. While souling, Christians would carry lanterns, which were later left on the dinner table for the returning souls, a custom also found in Tyrol and parts of Italy. One way or another, Halloween is never gone without its candlelight, all for the purposes of inviting souls. Makes you think. Christian minister Prince Sori Kante linked the wearing of costumes to the belief in vengeful ghosts. It was traditionally believed that the souls of the departed wandered the earth until All Saints' Day, and All Hallows' Eve provided one last chance for the dead to gain vengeance on their enemies before moving to the next world. In order to avoid being recognized by any soul that might be seeking such vengeance, people would don masks or costumes. In the Middle Ages, churches in Europe that were too poor to display relics of martyred saints at All Hallowtide let parishioners dress up as saints instead. Some Christian sects still observe this custom at Halloween today. Author and historian Leslie Banatine believes this could have been a Christianization of an earlier pagan custom. Many Christians in mainland Europe, especially in France, believed that once a year, on Halloween, the dead of the churchyards rose for one wild, hideous carnival known as the Danse Macabre, which was often depicted in church decoration. Christopher Almond and Rosamond McKitterick wrote in the New Cambridge Medieval History that the Danse Macabre urged Christians not to forget the end of all earthly things. The Danse Macabre was sometimes enacted in European village pageants, and court masks, with people dressing up as corpses from various strata of society. And this may have been the origin of Halloween costume parties. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages.
0: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too?
1: It's funny how Halloween opens up the discussion of all things ghostly. Some people love Halloween, and others put it last on their list. I hope this history answers some of the questions you might have regarding this very unusual holiday, its traditions, and its stories. It's not easy to piece together a timeline of how Halloween has evolved for a number of reasons. The primary two being, one, it combines the last day of October and the first three or four days of November with centuries of customs ranging from pagan rituals to innocent celebrations, and two, it crosses countries and regions and cultures with different beliefs. After 1605, hollow was eclipsed in England by Guy Fawkes Night, 5th of November, which appropriated some of its customs. In England, the ending of official ceremonies related to the intercession of saints led to the development of new, unofficial hollow customs. For instance, in 18th-19th century rural Lancashire in England, Catholic families gathered on hills on the night of All Hallows' Eve. One held a bunch of burning straw on a pitchfork, while the rest knelt around him, praying for the souls of relatives and friends until the flames went out. This was known as teen lay. There was a similar custom in Hertfordshire, and the lighting of Tyndall fires in Derbyshire. Some suggested these Tyndalls, were originally lit to guide the poor souls back to earth in Scotland and Ireland old hallowtide customs that were at odds with reformed teaching were not suppressed as they were important to the as as people thought they were important to the life cycle and rites of passage of local communities and curbing them would have been difficult so in many of those places in old england those old celtic traditions still remain in parts of italy until the 15th century Families left a meal out for the ghosts of relatives, before leaving for church services. In 19th century Italy, churches staged theatrical reenactments of scenes from the lives of saints on All Hallows Day, with participants represented by realistic wax figures. And this one gets really gruesome. In 1823, the graveyard of Holy Spirit Hospital in Rome presented a scene in which bodies of those who recently died were arrayed around a wax statue of an angel who pointed upwards towards heaven. In the same country, parish priests went house to house, asking for small gifts of food which they shared among themselves throughout the night. In Spain, they continue to bake special pastries called Bones of the Holy, in Spanish, Huesos de Santo, and set them on graves. At cemeteries in Spain and France, as well as in Latin America, priests lead Christian processions and services during all Hallow tide after which people keep an all-night vigil. Over the years, Halloween has evolved into a day of activities, including trick-or-treating, carving jack-o'-lanterns, festive gatherings, wearing costumes, and eating treats. Here in America, in the late 1800s, in an effort to pull families back together after the horrific damage and loss of life that the Civil War caused, there was a movement in America to mold Halloween more into a holiday that focused more on community and neighborly get-togethers than about ghosts and pranks and witchcraft. Halloween parties for both children and adults became the most popular way to celebrate the holiday, and the parties focused on food, games, and festive costumes. Magazines, newspapers, community leaders, and churches encouraged people to take anything grotesque out of Halloween celebrations, and this idea took hold on into the early 20th century, causing Halloween to lose at least some of its superstitious overtones and beliefs and become more of a fun occasion that children could look forward to rather than dread. By the 1920s and 30s, Halloween had become a secular but community-centered holiday with parades and town-wide Halloween parties as the featured entertainment. However, despite the best efforts of many schools and communities, vandalism began to plague some celebrations in many places during this time. Between 1920 and 1950, the centuries-old practice of trick-or-treating was also revived, although it really didn't have a name yet. that wouldn't happen until 1952. Between 1920 and 1950, the centuries-old practice of going door-to-door for handouts was also revived. As to when the term trick-or-treat came about, no one knows for sure, but the first traceable mention of trick-or-treat appeared in a Disney cartoon titled Trick-or-Treat, Featuring Donald Duck and his nephews Huey, Dewey and Louie. That was in
0: 1952.
1: My dad used to really get into Halloween. Every year he would call a buddy he knew in the wholesale food business and get cases of Cracker Jacks for Halloween. This was before the days of places like BJ's and Sam's Club where you could buy by the case lot. Cracker Jacks, if you don't know, are boxes full of caramel corn with peanuts, and they used to be real popular at baseball games. Peanuts, popcorn, and Cracker Jacks used to be a popular vendor call. They used to have some small free gift inside, and maybe they still do, but the gifts, sadly, got cheaper and cheesier throughout the years. Back in the day, if you got a box of Cracker Jacks while trick-or-treating... You were doing pretty good. Dad would cause a backup on the front lawn because he asked every kid who said trick-or-treat to perform a trick before he would give them a treat. Most kids just frowned or stared at him blankly, not knowing what to do or say. But the enterprising kids would do a little jig or sing a song or even make a funny face. Dad loved it, but he gave every kid a Cracker Jack box, trick or not. He He went through cases of Cracker Jacks every Halloween, and the kids loved it. We had moved to Pennsylvania when I was 10, and there I was introduced to Mischief Night, which took place the night before Halloween. I've since heard that it's celebrated in some areas on Halloween night, but in southeast PA, it was the night before Halloween. Research tells me it's generally called Mischief Night in New Orleans, Philadelphia, eastern PA, Delaware, and parts of New York State. Around the U.S., it's called by different names, such as Devil's Night in the Great Lakes region. Gate Night in parts of Canada, the Dakotas, and upstate New York. And in Baltimore, Maryland, it's been called Movers Night, as it used to be that thieves would remove things from your front porch, especially furniture. On the Canadian side of Niagara Falls, it was called Cabbage Night in the 60s, when rotten cabbages were hurled at homes. And Cabbage Night later spread through six states from New Jersey and Vermont to Kentucky. Out West, reports vary, but basically, most people say there is no Mischief Night but I think maybe the reports are missing the boat on that one. Mischief night generally provides the same results. Some kind of vandalism is involved. One popular one is toilet paper in people's houses, which involves tossing rolls of toilet paper over top of a house until it's covered with streams of it. Of course, if it rains that night, the homeowner has a real mess to clean up. Then there's the soaping of windows, the setting off of firecrackers, and on some occasions, destruction of mailboxes, which we all hate to see. I'll stop there, but Mischief Night has its nights. As I understand it, it exists in Ireland, Canada, the UK, the US, and lots of other places. I couldn't help but ask the question, when did Mischief Night first begin? The earliest reference I could find was from 1790, when a headmaster encouraged a school play which ended in, quote, an ode to fun which praises children's tricks on Mischief Night in most approving terms. In some regions of England, prank night started as part of the May Day celebrations, but then it shifted to later in the year, usually around the 4th of November, the night before bonfire night, or the night before Halloween. But there was a time when mischief night got out of hand. It was Halloween night, 1879, as the Louisville short line chugged its way through Newport, Kentucky, and the passenger train's engineer peered out into the dark night of October 31st and saw something truly frightening, a body lying across the railroad tracks. The engineer pulled on the brakes with all his might, halted the passenger train in the nick of time, and jumped out of the locomotive. As he rushed to the lifeless figure, the train operator quickly discovered why it wasn't moving. It wasn't a person at all, but a stuffed figure placed there by boys hiding along the tracks, who started to howl with laughter at their Halloween trick. Not funny although those juveniles had threatened his safety and some of his passengers were undoubtedly banged up. According to the story, the engineer never uttered a single admonishment. After all, he had engaged in similar antics when he was a boy. Such things were to be expected on Halloween during the gilded age when the ghoulish holiday was free of candy and full of pranks, vandalism, and even violence. When immigrants from Scotland and Ireland brought their Halloween traditions to the United States in the middle of the 1800s, they celebrated as they did back in their homelands. Not with costumed children going door-to-door for sweets, but by pulling pranks. I'm looking at a picture of a vintage postcard featuring the word Halloween and showing two boys, very well-dressed, shirt and tie, dated 1911. They're carrying a gate away from a house, obviously up to some mischief. In some places, a favorite Halloween prank was to just leave farm gates open, which left the farmer responsible for rounding up all his wandering livestock the following day. In Ireland, boys would carve spooky faces in turnips to scare unwary travelers, and they would tie strings to cabbages and pull them through fields to scare people, says Lisa Morton, author of Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. The Scots had one really obnoxious prank where they would pull up a cabbage stalk, light it, get it smoking, and shove it up to a keyhole at someone's door, so that when that person came home, they would find a house filled with this noxious-smelling vapor. Keyholes were big enough to see through in those days. And by the way, those spooky faces in turnips and gourds soon started appearing on pumpkins, which soon took on the name jack-o'-lanterns. And there's a number of legends concerning how the jack-o'-lantern got its name— starting with the strange lights that would flicker over peat bogs. There's also an Irish legend of Stingy Jack, a drunkard who ends up bargaining with Satan, loses, and is doomed to walk the earth with only a hallowed turnip lit by a candle to light his way. This legend comes from Ireland. By the way, Keene, New Hampshire holds the record for the most jack-o'-lanterns on display, which exceeds the 30,000 mark. But to get back to mischief across the American countryside in the latter 1800s. Common Halloween tricks included placing farmers' wagons and livestock on barn roofs, uprooting vegetables in backyard gardens, and tipping over outhouses, be they occupied or not. A teetotaling Protestant minister in Steubenville, Ohio, home of Dean Martin, awoke after one Halloween to discover his front porch decorated with beer signs and towering pyramids of beer kegs. The advent of the automobile delivered further opportunities for mischief, such as removing manhole covers from streets, deflating tires, and erecting fake detour signs to confuse motorists. At first, the pranking was pretty innocent and limited to rural places, but as metropolitan areas expanded, kids took the pranking into cities, and it became more destructive with setting fires, breaking glass, and tripping pedestrians. Boys ran through city streets, splattering people with bags of flour or black stockings filled with ashes. One year, youths in Kansas City waxed streetcar tracks on a steep hill, causing a vehicle to slip and crash into another streetcar, seriously injuring a conductor. After a spate of Halloween destruction in 1902, the Cook County Herald expressed the frustration felt by many residents of Arlington Heights, Illinois. Most everybody enjoys a joke or fun to a proper degree on suitable occasions. But when property is damaged or destroyed, it is time to call a halt, the paper intoned. We would advise the public to load their muskets or cannon with rock, salt, or birdshot, and when trespassers invade your premises at unseemly hours upon mischief bent, pepper them good and proper so they will be effectually cured and have no further taste for such tricks.' It certainly does work on squirrels in the backyard, so probably would work well on pranksters. Some Americans did take up arms against the Halloween tricksters, with fatal consequences. When pranksters in Tucson, Arizona, stretched a wire across the sidewalk to trip passersby in 1907, one pedestrian thrown to the ground drew a revolver and shot dead one of the jokesters. That same year, newspapers reported that a woman in Logansport, Indiana, was literally scared to death when her heart stopped after her daughter answered a knock on the door and screamed when a group of boys thrust a grinning pumpkin lantern in her face. The malicious violence and looting connected with Halloween only grew worse during the economic freefall of the Great Depression. In 1933, the holiday had become so destructive that cities were considering banning it. Many of the cities were smart enough, though, that they thought that while banning might not work, they might be able to buy these kids off. During the 30s, civic and religious authorities, community organizations, and neighborhood families began to program parties, carnivals, and costume parades on Halloween to keep the kids out of trouble. And it worked. There's not a lot of money during the Great Depression, so people pooled their resources and staged house-to-house parties, Halloween author Lisa Morton said. The first house might give out costumes such as white sheets to be ghosts or soot to smudge on kids' faces. Then the next house might give out treats, and the next might have a basement set up as a tiny haunt. This starts to morph into kids getting dressed up and going house to house trick-or-treating, and that also led to haunted houses. In the midst of World War II, youngsters took pledges to support the soldiers and sailors abroad by not engaging in Halloween vandalism. The children in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, vowed to back our fighting men by observing Halloween as they would want me to the pledge continued, I will share in good clean fun and merriment and fight against waste and damage. While Halloween itself grew tamer as trick-or-treating became part of the American culture in the 50s, the mischief didn't disappear completely. It just moved to the night before Halloween in most places. Kids wanted both the trick-or-treating and their pranking, so they moved it to October 30th, although it seemed to be a Midwest and East Coast thing, said one author. It really didn't make it to the West Coast. I hope this history answers some of the questions you might have regarding this very unusual holiday, its traditions, and its stories. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. Please take time to try some of our other podcast shows, and I'll give you a quick rundown of a few of them here. First, there's 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, where you'll find classic short stories weekly from authors such as Agatha Christie, Zane Gray, Jack London, Edith Wharton, and many others. And there are no dusty armchair relics here. All of our stories are fast and entertaining. Our last couple of shows, The Big Two-Hearted River by Ernest Hemingway, Buried Treasure by O. Henry, and The Missing Will, an air-cube Poirot mystery from Agatha Christie. Then there's our newest podcast, 1001 Stories from Roy's Diner. And by the way, Roy's Diner is that place between reality and fantasy that's sometimes reached just at the edge of sleep. It's also the book I've been wanting to write for a long time. Here, it's the best of old-time radio adventure shows. Our last three episodes are 1. Dream of Armageddon, a stark fantasy set in the year 2200. 2. The Shipment of Mute Fate, somehow a deadly Bushmaster snake gets out of his cage on a cruise ship. And 3. A Finger of Doom, A man's girlfriend delivers a package and suddenly disappears while standing right next to him. All from the award-winning radio program, Escape. That's 1001 Stories from Roy's Diner. Check it out. That's our fastest-growing podcast. I'll mention a few more podcasts in the weeks to come. As for reviews, we have some new ones here at 1001 Heroes, and here they are. The first one, five stars, Papa Stevens. Excellent stories and very entertaining. Once you get started, you will find it hard to pause it when needed. John's presentation and attention to the details when telling the stories makes the stories come to life. I've shared this podcast with several friends, and each time they thank me for the suggestion, saying they've gotten hooked too. Great job, John. Down from Kai's Grandma, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, History Wow, 5 stars. Love listening to your podcast on history. Great stories I would have never heard anywhere else. Amazing! Thanks for making my workday worth working. That one from WWG1GA76 Apple Podcast US, and this one well-researched podcast. Five stars. Great podcast with a great selection of material. Everything is well researched, and I appreciate that. It's clear that Mr. Hagedorn is well-rounded in his knowledge and interests. This show is no one-trick pony. Keep up the good work. That from Matt Taylor 74 Apple Podcast. U.S. Thank you also very much for leaving us these reviews. They are greatly, greatly appreciated. Thank you. We'll return with a brand new story next week Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, have a happy Halloween, and we'll be back soon.